0: Good morning, Theo 101. Happy Monday to you.
1: Happy Monday, everyone. We have three more weeks left, full weeks of this class. Can you believe that? It's happening. We're doing it. You have made it. We've been doing this crazy thing and there are three weeks left. I just want to announce that many times.
0: We do this like this rhythm of the semester and the year every year. And so we can tell you if you're feeling extra exhausted, exasperated, you know, if you're in an argument with your roommate, this is sort of a normal part of the semester. We are expressing solidarity with you. You can do this. We can do this. We're, we're excited about it. So we have a couple of announcements, actually one major announcement.
1: Yeah, what is that? Which is we're going
0: to be doing something a little bit different for the week of Thanksgiving. So just to let you all know. So not this next week, but the week after. Expect some announcements about that. Um, so just want to put a bug in your ear about that. Be, be ready to know more in the near future.
1: Thanksgiving yeah. week will be different. Thanksgiving week. Also, we're adding a new phrase to the creed today, our Lord. So I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord is what we're adding today. Our Lord is kind of funny language. It is like, a weird word. Like my lord, yeah. Like are, you, are we like going to a renaissance festival here? Have you ever been to a renaissance festival?
0: Oh yes. I really? love renaissance festivals. Are you joking? No, I'm not joking at all. In fact, oh. I'm like just this shy of being like a, a dress up person at the renaissance You're
1: festival. Like how short are you of being a, a dress up person? Like would you actually do that?
0: If I had the time and the money, it's considerable investment. Yeah. I probably would do it. But I'm a sucker for I'm a historian. I like old stuff.
1: Also, Downton Abbey, a show which yes. you wouldn't think I would like, but I actually loved. And I've watched you all the seasons. You liked it. Even despite the fact that the show went drastically downhill after the second season, I, I just stopped. stuck, I stuck yeah. with it because that's what I do. I just stick with it all the way.
0: Yeah, well, the idea of the language of lord mm-hmm. is kind of strange in our context, right? Like yeah. the idea of that someone would lord over someone else. Um, In the the strict sense, like it has been in in years past, we're a little bit less familiar with what that even looks like, especially in these United States, because here in the U.S., we famously rejected the idea that God had ordained a human being to rule over people. It's called the divine right of kings, and we here in the U.S.A., said no thanks to that. We wanted self-governance. So it's very strange, this idea of a human being given like dominion or like ruling power over someone. So what does it mean to confess that Jesus is the Lord?
1: Yeah, on that weirdness, this brings back a very strange memory for me. I think I was probably like 12 or 13 years old. I was in middle school and my mom used to drag me to this bizarre don't really know that it was a bible study i'm not really sure what it was it met in the basement of a catholic church and it was a radically charismatic group meaning a group that all really right. believed in like healing and speaking in tongues and like all like wild like dancing and prophetic frenzies in the spirit and there i was like a middle schooler i even remember what i was wearing isn't that weird like i was wearing a turquoise i used to wear sweatpants every day when awesome. i was <laughs> in middle school and i had a sweatpants suit like sweatpants pants and then a sweatpant or a sweatshirt with like a turtleneck underneath it and a hat with the Batman logo on it that turtleneck, I just wore every awesome. day. And I remember in this meeting,
0: I know what you're gonna wear Friday.
1: There was this guy who was like playing the guitar, like this long hair and this beard, like playing the guitar slowly. And we all had to go around in a circle. And what they were doing was just confessing that Jesus is Lord. And that felt wow. so he- it felt so heavy and strange to me. Like people were making this. Extreme declaration and when it came to me, I remember I remember confessing it saying it and having like no idea what that meant But realizing that that was a very important thing to say and only learning later Of course that in scripture we're told that those who confess Jesus as Lord before humans God will confess as his own, you know in heaven And so there's a very serious implication to this phrase our Lord.
0: That's right. So we're going to be exploring that together today what it means to confess Jesus as Lord. Um, but first, let's begin with our recitation of the creed. So are you ready? We're adding that key phrase, our Lord, at the end. Um, and shall we begin?
1: Let's do it. All right. I, I
0: believe,
1: believe in, in God, God, the Father Almighty, creator, creator of heaven and earth. And earth. I, I believe, believe in, in Jesus Christ, Christ his, his only Son, Our Lord. Our speaker today is Dr. Joseph Clare, part of our core teaching team. You may remember him. Yes. Yeah, you can clap. It's okay to clap. Yeah. Dr. Clare's PhD is from Princeton University. He's a specialist in church history. He's a theological ethicist. He's a member of our teaching team. He's a friend of all of our endeavors here together. Would you please join me in welcoming to the stage, Dr. Joseph Clare.
0: Welcome, Dr. Clare.
2: I got a very distressing email from a friend in distress in 2003. The year after I finished college, one of my best buddies had gone into the army in the wake of September 11th, 2001, and he ended up as an interrogator at a prison in Iraq, Abu Ghraib, and he was able to email, so he emailed me, Clare at mac.com, and he said... Joe, I'm trying to figure out if I can reconcile my loyalty to Jesus Christ and his way with my obligations here in the prison. And it dawned on me when he asked this question from thousands of miles away that I had thought a lot about Jesus Christ as being my Savior. Since high school, I had been touched by Christ and had deeply come to love this notion that Jesus was the Savior of the world, the one who died in our place, took our sins away, and could free us and forgive us and get us to heaven. But in the question, I realized I hadn't thought that much about what it would mean to call Jesus Lord, to call him Savior and Lord. What would it mean? What would it cost? What difference would it make in the way we live out our lives to call Jesus Lord. And this morning we come in some ways to the hub of the wheel, the centerpiece of the Apostles' Creed. This confession, our Lord, Jesus is Lord, is actually older than the Apostles' Creed. It's the spiritual heartbeat at the center that you find in the New Testament. Paul says in Romans 10:9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Kurios Jesus in Greek. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, You cannot, except by the Holy Spirit, say, Jesus is Lord, kurios, Jesus. And again, Paul, as Kanye's group was singing there at the beginning, in Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Ultimately, every tongue will confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. In some ways, all the other parts of the creed radiate out like spokes from the hub of a wheel, from the central confession that Jesus is Lord. But what does it mean? What I want to do is quickly unpack and help us understand, help myself understand what it would mean to honestly confess and recite that creed and say, our Lord, as we did in our final clause this morning. First, I want to think about God's kingship in the ancient world. Second, I want to think about Jesus as new king of a new kingdom. And third, I want to just meditate together and try to wrestle with what it would mean to call Jesus our king together this morning for us in this present moment. So God's kingship, Jesus as new king with new kingdom, and ultimately our ability to call him our king together. At the center of the creed is this claim that Jesus is Lord, and for the ancient hearers in the first century, Jews especially, they would have heard an identification of Jesus here with the God of Israel. Remember, God gave his name to his beloved servant Moses in Exodus 3:14, as Dr. Ramos talked about. God said, tell him I sent you. Well, who should I tell him sent me? Well, tell him I am who I am sent you. And you get that That special name for God, which is the tetragrammaton, as it's called, those four letters in Hebrew, YHWH, transliterated Yahweh, usually translated as Lord, all caps in our Old Testaments as we read it. So, very, very, very self consciously, these early Christians are saying that Jesus of Nazareth, he's the God of Israel. That's his divinity. And that's a big, big claim. That's hard enough to wrap your mind around. But that doesn't exhaust what these early followers meant by Lord. That also means that we want to identify Jesus with the divinity of the God of the Old Testament, but also with his rulership, with his power, with his authority. Because in the Old Testament, as you guys have caught wind already, God himself wants to be the king of Israel. He wants to have a special people in which he has authority over, and he gives them his instructions in the law, and he provides them a land for them to live. That's where we've gotten thus far in our reading of the Old Testament. And in some way, God doesn't really care about the model of political leadership or organization. First, it's Abraham. Abraham, Abraham, go to a land that I will show you. Abraham's kind of like a, he's like a rancher head of household. He's out there with thousands of sheep out on the wide, uh, you know, Levant. He's just cruising around and his family's growing. He says, through your family, I'm going to make a nation more numerous than the stars in the sky. And so he has children. He has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And remember, they go down into Egypt in that famine. And Joseph is already there. And out of that, comes a new leader to rise. His name is Moses, and he is a legislator, but he's not like the legislators in Greece and other parts of the world that come up with the laws himself. He gets the laws on top of the mountain from God himself. And he brings those laws to the people. And then Moses passes on, and Joshua becomes the captain of the army that leads them into the land, the new kingdom. And then we go through that crazy book of Judges. Did anybody find the book of Judges to be kind of crazy I know you're not supposed to say that about the bible but that is a wild book but there, the leaders are kind of like they're judges they're sort of like secular overseers but every once in a while the spirit comes upon them overpowers them they are meant to point people back to god they are like the prophets who rise up that point people back to god they are like the priests of the house of levi that god has instituted to point people back to god but the overarching message is that god wants to be the king of this people, the single ruler. So finally, we meet the judge prophet Samuel that you'll read this week, and the people come clamoring for a king. They want a king like the other nations. It's kind of ambivalent here whether or not God ever thought kingship or monarchy was a good idea, the ideal political model. He sort of seems frustrated, or Samuel definitely seems frustrated that they want a king. And We learn later in the prophet Hosea that they didn't just want a king to protect them, to be powerful like other nations. But they wanted a king that would give them the things that they wanted. And with a king in the ancient world came a religion. We have this neat separation of church and state enshrined in our constitution. But it does not exist in the ancient world. Every king would have had their own cultic religion. Because what does a king really need? If you're going to be the one person, a mon Ark. The singular person who has the right to rule. You've got to have some divine dust sprinkled on your shoulder if you're going to keep that up over on top everybody and so they knew with a new king could come other religious forms of idolatry now as you're going to read throughout the old testament you're going to go from here to there being a really good king king david although filled with foibles and follies and sins himself but good insofar as he points back points people back to the true king lift your head O gates let the king of glory come in. He sees his kingship as a little kingship in light of the big K kingship. And he's humble enough to recognize that king at times. But then we get the story of good kings and a lot of bad kings who point the people away from God and do Lord the power over them. And ultimately Israel breaks down. In the north, the Assyrians come. In the south, Babylonians come. And we go into a long exile. And finally, out of that long exile, we get to the New Testament, where we have the first century situation that Jesus is born into. And there's kind of an uneasy truce with the Roman Empire and a little king, little k king, Herod, who's half Jewish. He's kind of a puppet king, as the Roman Empire liked to put in place. And he and his two sons rule it over the people of Israel. They give him a, a new temple, and it's pretty spiffy. It's about as good as Solomon's, but it's not satisfying to those who long for the true king that would turn their hearts back to God. And so read now as we head into the next clause of the Creed, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Watch how the gospel writers are very keen to tell you that it was in the year of Caesar Augustus' census that Jesus' mom was pregnant with him that it was in the year of Emperor Tiberius that John the Baptist and Jesus began preaching that King Herod did not like it when wise men from the east came looking for the king of the Jews that they had interpreted in the stars Herod goes on a rampage and slaughters a lot of young boys in its wake notice that there's earthly kings feeling very threatened by the birth of Jesus The early Christians understood Jesus not just to be Savior, but also to be Lord or to be ruler, to be new king over them. But as the New Testament unfolds, we find out that Jesus is not the king bringing the kingdom that people expected. We want the king, we want God to be the king that we want not the king that he actually is that's what you find as people get to know jesus he unveils and reveals a totally upside down kingdom from the very beginning as paul says in philippians 2 he says jesus was in the form of god but he didn't think that that divinity was something to be exploited but he actually humbled himself taking the likeness of human form, becoming a slave, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's not what you expect when you're looking for the new King David or Caesar Augustus to rise up and reign in a new rule. You don't go looking down in the stinky stalls of Bethlehem to find the new king. Jesus models and reveals a totally new understanding of kingship, of authority, of rulership. He says, let the first among you become slaves, servants to those around him. He says at the high point in his ministry, the beginning of the upper room discourse, he washes his disciples' feet and says, follow this pattern if you want to be like your teacher and Lord. You've got to go low if you want to get high. He shows us an entirely different way of human leadership and authority. In Jesus, we find the inauguration of a new kingdom, which mysteriously, Jesus says, is now. It is within you. It is here. And yet, it is not yet. We have to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We know that Jesus in the incarnation, in his life, death, and resurrection, has brought in the reign of God, and yet we are still waiting for the full unveiling of that true justice and peace. We live in this kind of anxious in-between. The Pharisees sensed this, and they came to Jesus, trying to figure out if the kingdom was going to come with a hammer and change everything. And they said, So Jesus, do we pay our taxes to Caesar if we're going to follow you and recognize you in this kingdom you're talking about? He says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but render unto God that which is God's. And you get this uneasy sense that the kingdom is here, the kingdom is now, but it's not going to be a political takeover in this moment like many of his zealous early followers thought it was going to be there's a kind of difference there's a kind of expectation there's a kind of waiting and there's a kind of taking ourselves off of the seat of authority waiting for judgment to be the lord's and not ours but many of his early disciples were frustrated by this and left we find in the new testament but jesus says i am inaugurating and unveiling a new kingdom I am the King, the Lord. My rule is a rule of love and humility, of justice, of surprising subversions of the last becoming first, the low becoming high. And he also has a new people, the church, born of his spirit. And he gives us a new law that doesn't take away the old law, but gives us the essence of the law of love. And gives us the power of his Holy Spirit to write that law on the flesh of our hearts. And ultimately he gives us a new land, not Palestine, but to the ends of the earth where the church will go. This is a new king with a new kingdom. So what does it mean, friends, to reckon with God's kingship in Jesus In this new kingdom? What would it mean to make him our Lord, to call him our King? I really appreciated what Brian and Leah said this morning because nothing sounds more foreign to a revolutionary, red blooded American than having a King or a monarch again. We are democratic people. We do not like the idea of a monarch of all the authority and all the power laying in the hands of one single person. Why? because we're afraid they're going to abuse it. Absolute power corrupts absolutely, Lord Acton says. What could be worse than a bad king? Unaccountable in their use or abuse of power. Unaccountable in their ways. Of course, we figured out an earthly form of political governance and self-governance with checks and balances modeled on the Roman Republican system. Tribune and Congress, the Senate, the Consuls, the President and Vice President, keeping everything moving, the Democratic voice of the people, and self-legislation. So we're like, I don't know if I want to have a king, right? Having a king sounds like a bad idea, reversion to the ancient world. But it does sound like a bad idea until you learn what kind of king we're being asked to submit ourselves to. This is a king who says, Come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden. I'm lowly and gentle of heart. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. I'll give you rest. This is a king who shows us a different way. doesn't abuse power and authority, but uses it to heal us, to direct us to the good, to right our wrongs. So we ought not be anxious about submitting ourselves to this king. But nevertheless, understand what is at stake for us in calling Jesus our Lord this morning. Because what's the correlate of calling someone dominus in the creed in Latin or kurios in Greek? What's the analog? It's to think of yourself as a servant or as a slave. You call someone Lord, it's probably better translated master, Because you are yourself a servant, even a slave. That's a hard pill to swallow. Paul says we must become servants or slaves of God if we truly want to be free. I want to consider three ways in which this paradox of becoming servants or slaves in order to become free works out in our lives. So first, paradox Become a slave in order to become free at the social and political level. In the ancient world of first century Rome, the empire, Augustus, remember, moved away from Republican Rome and took all the power for himself and began the imperial Rome, Roman rule of basically king or monarch, although Augustus tried not to use the language of kingship because he knew it would freak all the Romans out, but that's what it was. In a Caligula and Claudius and Tiberius and Nero, they just continued down that line of kingship, of sole singular power in one figure. And out of that hierarchical system was an infinite expanse of smaller social and political hierarchies. The Roman Empire was the most socially stratified world you could possibly imagine. Everything depended on your social standing. There were slaves and there were masters, there were men and there were women, there's Jews and there's Gentiles, there's children and there's parents. Everything depended on this pecking order and you had to contort and comport yourself according with your social standing. You needed to curry favor by being very flattering and very low in your gaze. You had to understand where you fell in this grand social and cosmic hierarchy under the headship the lordship the divine and political right of the emperor himself. And in the 1st century, don't miss this. When Jesus is called lord kurios, his followers know what they're saying. He's not just savior, he's not just forgiver of sins, he's not just the anointed one, the messiah of the nation of Israel. He is kurios. He is Lord. That's a term reserved for the emperor himself and certainly for the master over slaves. And Christians knew the audacity of calling this humble, gentle king on the donkey kurios. And indeed, what Christians started to find in their social life together as members of the body of Christ, as the church, was that there's only one hierarchy in the universe that matters. And that is one Lord, and the rest of us are servants. And when you find out that there's one Lord and that you're a servant, that you humble yourself and you bend the knee and confess with your tongue that there is one Lord. It suddenly melts away and changes the way you look horizontally at all the other people in the pecking orders around you. Indeed, very early on in Christianity, slavery began to be abolished by individuals practicing manumission, which is where you could actually buy your slaves' freedom and send them back into the world. And Christians did this not on a notion of individual rights. In a modern sense, but on a notion of universal lordship, because they feared that slavery and slaveholding would create a false lordship in the world. There ought be no other lords other than the one Lord. And so Paul says audaciously in Galatians three twenty four, hey, in the body of Christ, we're finding that there's n- there's actually neither Gentile nor Jew, slave or free, or male or female. These distinctions are melting away under the universal lordship of Jesus, who is the real kurios. That changes everything. But don't miss this doorway into that new equality, that new ethic of equality of all human beings before the one Lord. There is the deep humility required on our parts to reckon and confess Jesus as Lord. There's only one way in to that new kingdom that new ethic in that new country. It's to actually humble yourself and reckon with Jesus as Lord. There is no other gateway in. Why? Because the festering wounds of pride and comparison and judgment are too deep. The pecking orders are external and internal. Even though so many of those social hierarchies have melted away in the past 250 years of democracy in this country, they've gone internal. Indeed, we are the most discriminating, judgmental, comparing, lording people, even if we can hide it mostly on Instagram or in our souls. Second, to recognize Jesus' universal lordship, kurios, doesn't just change our social and political lives through the deep humility of confessing him as one Lord, it also changes our inner worlds, our private lives. Because Paul says in Romans 7, I'll tell you what's just about as bad, if not worse, than being a servant of another human being. And that's bad. It's being a slave inwardly to your own flesh, to your own passions, to your own disordered affections, to your own pride, to your own addictions. He says, woe is me. My members are slaves to my passions. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I end up doing. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Jesus Christ, the Lord, will. Because to call Jesus Lord is to turn all of your loyalty, all of your affection, all of your priority toward God. I remember that. I didn't have the experience my friend Joshua was having in the prison, but I did have the experience of being inwardly enslaved to my passions in high school when I came to Christ. What could be worse than being drawn to do things that you know you don't want to do? To be addicted to things, to compulsively do things that you've repented over, felt bad about, and prayed for forgiveness and release from for so long. That kind of inner mastery on the contours of the soul stings in its own dark way. And Paul says, this Lord will deliver me from that kind of slavery. But first you must enslave yourself to become a servant of Jesus Christ if you want to be inwardly freed and made new. It's not magic dust. It's not the lamp of Aladdin. It is the deep way of humility and discipleship, daily dying, to take up your cross, to follow, to lose your life that you might find it. It's waking up early when you don't have time to get on your knees, to turn to him in the Gospels, to look for his face, to listen for his voice throughout your day. It is a daily ritual to make Jesus your Lord, to call and confess him. And finally, the paradox of slavery which turns into true freedom Is ultimately in regard to the great tyrant that we're all up against in this life, that nasty, cruel master called death. There's one tyrant that no human being, not slave, not emperor, can evade. You cannot will against it, but death comes. And Paul says, I have been freed. I have been enslaved, and now I'm freed even over that punishing master. Where is your sting, O cruel death? That great, great line in the Heidelberg Catechism, the first question and answer, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I belong in body and soul, in life and in death, to Jesus Christ, my Savior. It's that kind of inner freedom Even from your fear of what's going to come when you die or after you die or if your sins will hang with you or if there's nothing or if there's punishment, you're freed even from that anxiety. And as Bob Dylan sang so long ago, I don't know if you guys listen to Dylan anymore. You're going to have to, you guys don't listen to him, come on. You're going to have to serve somebody. This is the reality of our lives is that though we democratic people do not like to think of ourselves as being under any authority, even our parents' authority as we take off to college, we like to think of ourselves as free but we know we are enslaved ultimately because you're gonna have to serve somebody. Something's got your mind captive. Something's going to guide you when you make the momentous decision of your life. Something is going to control your affections. What is it? You cannot have no master. You have to choose the right master. You're going to have to serve somebody. I can actually sing almost as well as Dylan does on that song, but I'll spare you. My buddy Joshua ultimately decided that his loyalty and allegiance to Jesus Christ as King, as Lord, and to that new kingdom was irreconcilable with his role-specific responsibilities as interrogator at Abu Ghraib. And he decided to apply on the basis of his conscience for conscientious objection status from the U.S. Army. And he Received it and was honorably discharged that summer. He found in the voice and teachings of Jesus Christ a way that was different than the lordship and authority and power and violence that he had to carry out. And like the testimony of the Quakers who founded this college, they testified to Jesus as a king of peace. Jesus as embodying a new way, even as we wait and tarry for the kingdom to come. Judgment is the Lord's and not ours. Joshua came home and moved back to Iowa where he cared for his father who was dying of cancer. And he wrote a beautiful play about his experience in the army called Returns about coming home and about trying to follow Jesus into the way of peace and how it didn't make sense to his family. And he wasn't able to square it with all of his other theological convictions, but he knew he had to follow his conscience and become a conscientious objector. Well, fast forward a few years. He started his Ph.D. program at the University of Chicago and was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, cause unknown, and he died six months later. And I was with him the night that he died at Presbyterian Hospital on the Upper East Side of New York, <clears throat> and he he was with his mom and his two sisters, and was in incredible pain, but he would use all of his strength to pop his eyes open and look into yours. And I saw him look at his mom, Christy, and say, do not be afraid. And I I thought that was the most heroic, noble thing I'd ever seen, certainly from a son to his mother. And I remember thinking so clearly that night, as I left the hospital before he died, which in some ways I regret, and thinking here was a man who courageously, almost cheerfully, was heading into his own death. But he himself had so fully submitted himself to Jesus Christ as Lord. All of his loyalty and allegiance and affection was fixated on Jesus Christ In this worldly power, inwardly in his heart of hearts, in his flesh, and even in the face of that cruel master death, he was able to see his captain, his lord, his king, who had defeated death, and he marched triumphantly through that narrow way into the kingdom, fully unveiled. And I just want us to remember this morning that this creed, this thing that we're reciting, it emerged out of an early Christian practice in the first and second and third century that was not originally just a thing to recite, a big blurb of theological tenets, a crystallization of the faith. It was a question and answer, remember? It was a question that was proposed to which you would answer if you were ready to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And the question was, do you believe in God? I believe in God, Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Our Lord. Remember, at the center of this creed is a person, is God. At the center of this creed is an invitation to a relationship. But here the relationship is not just a comforting one of a child to a parent or a sinner to a Savior, but it is a servant to a Lord. To say with that possessive we, our Lord, is to call yourself His this morning. To recite it from our heart of hearts. It is to know yourself as a follower of Jesus and to know that His Lordship might require you to shake off false allegiances, might require you to shake off inner affections, might require you to shake off fear of ultimate things like death. For in this Lord, this Captain, this King's hands, we're ultimately safe. We're ultimately good. Because He is good. So this morning... I just want to finish with the proposal once more, having it be a question. For to say it, to recite it as hollow words, and to not reckon with what it would mean to call Jesus our Lord is the worst kind of blasphemy. So let us consider and recite the creed up until our Clause this morning if you would. I believe in God, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord.